All right. Good morning. Good to see you today. Drew. All right, man. Summer weather. A bunch of depressed people turning more excited. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm kind of not kidding. Anyway, hey, welcome to Cedar Mill. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new with us, it's great to see you. Uh, just want to let you know if you're interested in getting connected around here and you're not an ambassador, or even if you are, you can fill out one of the blue cards in the P rack in front of you. It's called the I'm Here card. It's our way of connecting with you and figuring out how to get you plugged in with our larger community around here. You can drop those in the offering bags when they come by or turn it in at the Welcome Center on your way out, but we'd love to get connected with you. And at this time, our ushers are going to come forward and lead us in a time of giving. As they do that, I want to let you know about an opportunity for you to give uh, to something that's near and dear to my heart. Every now and then at Cedar Mill, we highlight ministries that are kind of above and beyond our, our normal giving. And so it's a chance to say, hey, thank you for supporting all the ministries at Cedar Mill. But this is a special one that if you have some extra resources and you feel led, you can, you can give to this. And this, uh, this Sunday, we're talking a little about students going to camp. We send our elementary kids from third grade all the way up through high school off to camp in the summer. And this is really important to us because all the research shows that outside of mom and dad, inside of sort of the core family, one of the highest influences on a child's faith is a week at camp, a week at Christian or Bible camp. And so we want to send as many kids as possible. It is not cheap, especially for families with multiple kids. And some of our kids need scholarships. And so if you want to be a part of that, you can just write a check and write camp assistance on it. And we will make sure it gets to the right kids and the right families so that as many of our kids can go to camp as possible. Um, it's just a really, really important moment um, for, our, for our youth. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, guys, our men's breakfast is coming up. We'd love to just have you there. It's a time to connect with other guys, fellowship, share a meal. Um, we've got a, a great speaker this year who's going to talk about a, a fa a, you know, faith moments and with the family. Um, so um, let me see here. What are they talking about exactly? I'm looking at my notes. They're talking about, I didn't, I took it off there. It's going to be really great. <laughs> There's bacon. Just come. There'll be bacon. Um, Anyway, that was a terrible announcement. Uh, Gabby will reprimand me later for not doing as good a job as she does. Uh, number four, uh, we're making a shift in our services on Sunday morning around prayer. One of our goals here at Cedar Mill is to make prayer just a normal part of our communal life together. Meaning that we're praying not only on our own, but together with others when we gather. And so um, in these last months, we've been offering prayer down in the front at the end of each service. We're going to try something a little uh, different here in the coming months. On the first and third Sundays, we're going to open up our connect room, which is the room right there in the back. And at the end of the service, when we kind of move into a time of communion and worship, and then after service, even after the service is over, there will be people in the connect room who would love to talk with you and, and pray for you and pray with you if you are in need of prayer. And so I want to encourage you um, to take advantage of that. We'll talk more about it in the weeks to come, but today is our first Sunday where we're saying, hey, head to the Connect Room and, and find a place where you can safely and confidentially talk about what's happening in your life and, and get prayer for those things. 
And then two more things, both kind of pieces of family business. Some of you know the Baileys, Troy and Rebecca Bailey. They're some of our missionaries. They've been with us for the last couple months um, in our missions house. They're heading back to India. They're going back out onto the field. And before they take off, they're inviting us to their home, their temporary home back here um, on our back lawn. And they're having an open house this afternoon. They'd love to get to know you. They'd love to talk to you about their ministry and who they are and what they're doing. And they're going to do some formal sharing at 5 p.m. tonight and then again at 7. So you can come anytime in there, um, connect with them, encourage them, uh, get information about what they're doing so you can pray for them and support them. So uh, we want to say thank you to the Baileys for, for being with us. And we're excited for what God's going to do in and through you in this next season of ministry. And then some tough news. Another one of our missionaries, Doug Groth, um, and his wife, Leela, got the news that Doug actually has intestinal cancer and liver cancer. Um, Really, really hard news. Uh, They are taking it as well as they can. They're trusting God. They want you to know they have good medical uh, insurance and medical coverage in Poland where they're serving but they do covet our prayers. Um, So we want to come alongside this family and uh, just pray for them and encourage them and ask God to to heal and work in in Doug's body these days. And so I'm going to do that right now. I want to pray uh, for the growths and also for the Baileys as they go, and then we'll get into our message. So please join me. Father, this is a, a time when we come together as a family and as your kids and as your people and as your community here at Cedar Mill, we, we lift up our friends, our friends, the Baileys, who are heading back out around the world. And God, we're trusting that you will use them. I pray that as they go, they feel encouraged, they feel filled up, that feel strengthened for the journey, and that you will continue by your Holy Spirit to empower the work that they're doing. Encourage them where they need encouragement and challenge them and open up opportunities where you see fit, Lord, and where you can use them. And then we pray for Doug and for Leela, for Doug's uh, health situation, Lord, that you would pour out peace and confidence and hope and assurance, not just in the circumstances, um, not just in healing, but just of your faithfulness to us in, in everything that we face. But we do also pray, God, that you would touch Doug's body and heal him of this cancer, that you would give him uh, the right treatment, that you would use the doctors and the nurses, and that you would heal him in whatever way you see fit, God. And we trust you. We trust you, and we declare that we trust you no matter what you do. And we love you, and we thank you, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Ready for a sermon? Well, you better be, because here comes a sermon. (laughs) 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, If you brought your Bible, pull it out. There's one conveniently placed in the pew rack in front of you if you did not bring yours. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 17. And as you turn there, let me remind you that this series is one where we're together acknowledging our temptation as human beings to get focused on externals. To get focused on, on the externals of our lives, to, to focus on the externals of others, and to be drawn to things like success and beauty to magnify things like charm and talent, to pursue popularity and achievement. Every single one of us is drawn to one and or all of those things. But the Bible tells us that God is different. 
that he sees things, that he sees reality, that he looks at us and he does not see what we always see. This is what the scriptures say. This is right out of our passage from last week. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks down past the externals into our core. He cares deeply about our character, about the innermost part of who we are, about our true self. And so this series is called Heart Matters. And as I pointed out in the first service, you can say heart matters, or you can say heart matters. And depending on the emphasis, it means something different. You see how that's tricky? It's a cool title, isn't it? At any rate, I did not come up with it. But in this series, we're taking our cues from a guy. I'm a little punchy today. It was a long day yesterday, and I'm a little tired, so, you know, get ready. Uh, We're taking our cues from this guy named David. And last week, we read the passage where he was anointed king. The prophet Samuel rolls into town, comes to Bethlehem, and anoints David the second king of Israel. And when he did this, David was just a boy. But it says this, it says the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, that his life was was just flooded, just soaked and saturated with the guiding and directing power of the Holy Spirit in his life. And if you're like me, you're tempted maybe to think, wow, that sounds amazing. That, that must have just been an amazing moment, an amazing time, a tremendous gift. And it almost feels like at the end of that section, like David's life is just going to be like smooth sailing from this point forward. Because after all, the Holy Spirit has been flooded into his life. But let me challenge your thinking on that a bit. Because virtually every time in the Bible, the Spirit of God gets poured out on people, Almost immediately, something happens. Do you know what it is? Yeah, it's, they face persecution. They face imprisonment. They go to jail. They struggle. They are confronted with a huge challenge. They go off into the wilderness and some sort of wilderness experience. And this happens all the way from the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, even up to Jesus, who himself was baptized with the Spirit and then immediately goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil himself for 40 days. In other words, as Tim Keller says, when the Spirit comes, the trouble begins. And so that's the reality that David is facing, and it's exactly what happens to him. The Spirit is poured out on him in his life, and the very next thing you know, he's a young boy fighting for his life with a giant. And that's our story today, how to have a Spirit-empowered, bold heart when we're facing huge challenges and fears in our world. And friends, this is probably the most well known story in the scriptures. This is like a preacher's nightmare. In fact, I'm going to have Carl come up and preach the rest of this message. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But you've already heard the story. You already know how it ends. And so the temptation to check out is real huge. But I have to say this, friends. Even with what's been happening in our world these days, even with all the tragedy and struggle and difficulty that's flooding our news, we still live in the most secure, safe society that has ever existed. 
In fact, you and I are more safe here and now in Cedar Mill, Oregon in 2018 than people have been throughout the history of the world anywhere else. And yet, we are still perhaps more worried, more anxious, more overwhelmed with fear than ever before. And so today, even though this story is very well known, even though I've heard, I'm sure you have heard a sermon like this one probably three or four other times, I am going to ask you to re-engage and to dig in because I believe God wants to challenge you and encourage you this morning through this very, very familiar story. David and Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17, we'll begin in verse 1. We're going to go through a lot, a lot of scripture today. So it's a great, great narrative. Here we go. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokah and Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damin between Sokah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing this, the Philist, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and, the, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. The story today begins with the setting. Like we kind of catch the, 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 the plot of the story. This is like a, like a Lord of the Rings film, like launching right away. Two enormous armies camped out on either side of a valley, one on this hill, one on the other, between Sokah and Azekah, in Judah, in the land of Israel, in the valley of Eli. You see, this is a battle that's being fought on home turf. Quick Bible geography lesson here. The Philistines were, are a people who are from the territory of Philistia. You can see it there on the map. It's a, it's a long, thin territory west of Judah, right along the border of the Mediterranean Sea. And running east to west, kind of through Philistia into Judah, there were a series of major valleys. You can see them on the map. They're illustrated with the white, scraggly lines. Those aren't rivers. They didn't have rivers in Israel. Why? It doesn't rain in Israel, right? I know that's hard to believe, but it doesn't rain in Israel. But these are valleys. Those are the valleys that run from east to west. And if you were advancing an army, if you had a large army that you were moving, you could not take them over or through the mountains. You would have to take them through one of these valleys. And that's exactly what's happening here. The Philistines have come with their army, and they're coming right down the valley of Elah. It was the valley that actually went straight to Bethlehem 
and provided direct access to the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem. This, my friends, is a very strategic valley. And because of this, about 12 miles before they get to Bethlehem, they hit the town of Azekah, which sort of acted like a military outpost or a military gateway that guarded Jerusalem from anyone seeking to invade from the west. So the Philistines, they are coming. They're coming to Israel. And by the way, the name Philistines in Hebrew means invaders. So the invaders are coming. They're coming down the valley of Elah. Trouble has come to God's people. And now all of a sudden, it shows up in the form of an over nine feet tall warrior named Goliath. Listen to what the scriptures say about Goliath. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor weighing 5,000 shekels. That's roughly, by the way, 150 pounds. 150 pounds of armor. We're told that his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. Now, in ancient times, a weaver would use a giant loom and there was a a big beam that ran across the top of the loom. It was called the weaver's rod and it was typically about six inches in diameter. Now imagine a spear that shaft is six inches in diameter. The head of that spear, uh, 600 shekels, is about 18 pounds. And just to give you some context, an Olympic shot put weighs, does anyone know how much an Olympic shot put weighs? Oh, well, I didn't know anyone would know that. I did not know that, but I'm impressed with your Olympic knowledge, Larry. Good job. 16 pounds. In other words, the strongest men in our world today compete by heaving a 16-pound metal ball as far as they can. The tip of Goliath's spear weighed 18 pounds alone. Do you remember the old Jim Croce song? You know the one I'm talking about? You don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off that old Lone Ranger. And you don't mess around with Jim. See, Goliath is a lot like Jim. You didn't want to mess with him. And all of a sudden, this enormous human being parts the ranks of the Philistine army. He walks down into what was called the Valley of Death, the valley where lots of people were going to lose their life. And he issues a challenge of what in the ancient world was called single combat. And single combat was a common practice, and it was used simply to preserve the loss of life. Two armies would line up adjacent to one another, and they would look across the valley and they would say, you know, we could do this, we could fight, we could kind of all move full tilt into the valley and go for it, but a lot of people are gonna die. And so maybe instead of that, here's what we'll do. We'll send our greatest warrior down, you send your greatest warrior down, and then whoever wins, that army will have defeated the other army. And check this out, friends, because this is the main point. The primary premise behind single combat was this. Whoever won would would demonstrate and would declare this truth. Our God is more powerful than your God. 
Single combat was about my God is bigger than your God. Remember this in elementary school? My dad is bigger than your dad. Did you ever play the my dad is bigger than your dad game? I loved that game. My dad was like 6'2", and he was on the offensive line in college football. So I didn't lose the my dad's bigger than your dad game very often. In, in, this, in this instance, they're playing the my God is bigger than your God game. And so this whole battle is not just about two men. It's not just about two armies. It's not just about two nations. It's about two people who serve two different gods. And the first thing this story teaches us about developing a bold heart is this. Your world will test the size and power of your God. This world that we live in, it will test the size and power of the God you serve. You see, friends, trouble and challenges and hardships and Goliaths, you do not have to go looking for them. They will find you. This world will bring them to you. They will be coming down the valley of your life sooner or later. And sometimes they're scary. Sometimes they're terrifying. Sometimes they, like Goliath, are enormous. But they will stand and they will stare you in the face and mockingly, mockingly they will scream at you this question. How big is your God now? How big is your God now standing there staring at me? You see, you've talked about how big he is. You've sung songs about his, his sovereignty and his majesty and his grandeur in church, and it felt real good. You've told other people just how big and mighty and powerful he is. You've even reassured others who are facing tough times that our God is big and he's faithful and he's strong and he's powerful. But when Goliath comes, when a giant challenge stands staring you in the face, the question is, how big will your God be then? And friends, I have to tell you, a bold heart anticipates that this day is coming. A bold heart knows at some point, Goliath will show up in my life. A bold heart understands that this world will test the size and power of your God. Jesus says it this way. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. You, not, you might have trouble, like you can hopefully sidestep some trouble. No, trouble is coming. It, it will come into your life in various forms, but at some point, at some point, there's gonna be a big one. At some point, you're gonna stand toe-to-toe, face-to-face with a Goliath. The size and power of your God will be tested. So now as the story continues, we're told, that David's three oldest brothers are part of Saul's army. They've gone and they've joined the army, but David is too young. He is too small to join the army, and so he's kind of doing the errand boy thing. He's running back and forth between home and tending the sheep and taking supplies to his brothers who are on the front lines. Verse 16. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. 
Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Talk about a motivation. (laughs) David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? Then he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. The author is very careful in verse 16 at the beginning of this section to tell us that Goliath has been challenging Israel for how many days? 40 days of challenge. 40, by the way, is a number in the Bible that symbolizes opposition, testing, and trial. Noah gets 40 days of rain. The Israelites wander around the the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus goes off into the wilderness for fasting and temptation for 40 days. And here we see Goliath for 40 days challenging and taunting God's people. And when David wants to do something about it, he gets what? Celebrated and encouraged and praised for his bravery, for his enormous faith in the living God. No. When David wants to do something about it, he gets criticism and opposition. But more specifically, and maybe even significantly, who does that opposition and criticism come from? His very own brother. He's criticized and opposed by his very own brother. And this is the part of the story that teaches us that to have a bold heart, you must understand that you will get opposition and receive criticism for trusting God. You will get opposition and receive criticism for trusting God. You see, sometimes, friends, in the church, what we believe is this. If I trust God, if I step out in faith, if I do something real bold and courageous for the Lord that he's telling me to do, people are going to rally. I'm going to be a hero. They're going to celebrate me and encourage me and lift me up. And that is actually very seldom the case. If you really want to do something big and bold and courageous for God, you 
will most likely be discouraged. And sometimes you will even be discouraged by those closest to you, by those who you thought would encourage you. Sometimes it's the people who are closest to us who can discourage us the most. And I can only imagine how David must have looked up to Eliab, his oldest brother, this man who was a soldier, this guy who was respected and honored and revered. But here's here's what I believe. Here's what I think is going on in this story. I think that every day that Eliab walked to the edge of that valley and couldn't trust God enough to face Goliath, Every day that that giant taunted and mocked the God of Israel and Eliab stood by and did nothing. I think every moment that that happened and Eliab just stood there, paralyzed, something in Eliab's heart died. Every single moment that happened, for the past 40 days, something in Eliab's soul had just been slowly shrinking and withering away. In verse 32, David sums it up this way. He says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. And friends, here's the truth. When my Goliaths and yours go unchallenged, unfaced, slowly but surely, we lose heart. Something dies at the very core of our souls. And that's what's happening with Eliab. Something in him is dying, slowly, every day. And being around his other brothers, that wasn't so bad because they were afraid to. The same thing was happening with them. But then when David, his kid, runt little brother, shows up and displays boldness, the kind of boldness that Eliab knew that he himself should have been displaying, that was just too much for his pride. And so he has no other choice but to try and tear David down. He brings David down because he doesn't want to feel so low. Notice David's response in verse 30. He then turned away to someone else. So simple. He then turned away to someone else. Friends, David does not allow unfair criticism and opposition to keep him from pursuing God's plan for his life. And friends, that that isn't to say this. So listen to this part. That isn't to say... That criticism that you don't like, that opposition to things you're saying or doing or thinking or believing is not a good thing. It's not always to be ignored. The Bible actually says this, counsel and criticism and advice when it's warranted is to be welcomed. When a godly person, a thoughtful person comes to you and says, I'm not sure about this move. I'm not sure about this action, this behavior, this thought, this, this, this course of life. The Bible says, stop, pause, and consider it. This is Proverbs chapter 15. If you listen to constructive criticism, you will be at home among the wise. Proverbs 25, to one who listens, valid criticism is like a gold earring or other gold jewelry. You see, this isn't I can spiritualize any decision I want to make and anyone who tries to speak against me, I'll just say they're trying to fight off God's will for my life. No, the Bible says stop, pause, consider the source, consider the words, check it out with others, make sure that you are in line with God's will and plan for your life. But it also says this, 
Do not let unfounded criticism and opposition keep you from boldly following the Lord. And David refuses to let the insecurities of his older brother keep him from walking down God's path for his life. Verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And I have to wonder about that last statement from Saul. Is this, is, does he really, really believe in David at this moment? Or is this just like when you tell someone, you know, hey, I'll be praying for you, and you really have no intention of praying? Has anyone ever done that to you? Hey, I'll be praying for you. Have you ever done that to anyone else? Oh, no? Oh, well, you're better than me. I have. Um, that's what Saul does here. It's just like, go and the Lord be with you. Like, man, doesn't have a lot of encouragement. And here's the section where we realize this. To have a bold heart, you must understand boldness is developed, not discovered. And maybe the central teaching of this entire passage. Boldness is developed, not discovered. There's a guy who arrives at the pearly gates of heaven. He walks up to St. Peter, who's there with his files, and he says, I'm here. And he says, welcome to heaven. Yeah, and he says, name. The guy gives him his name. Peter looks up his file, and he's looking through it. And he says, well, I'm looking through your file here, and it, it doesn't seem that you've done anything terribly bad. Like, there's no egregious sins in your life, nothing real scandalous, like, Nothing real terrible, and that's good, but it also doesn't seem like you've done anything, you know, very courageous. There's nothing of valor or courage in your file either. Can you tell me about a time where you've ever done anything, like, really bold? Any, anything really good? Has that ever happened in your life? And the guy says, oh, yeah, for sure. And he says, well, let me hear it. And the guy says, yeah, there was this time I saw this woman, and she was being assaulted by this whole gang of men. And so I pulled my car over and I jumped out and I grabbed a tire iron out of the back seat and I walked up to the, to the ringleader of this gang, this big, burly, hairy guy with tattoos and he even had a nose ring. And I looked him in the face and I ripped the nose ring right out of his nostrils and I said, you leave her alone. And then I turned to the rest of the gang and I said, if any of you even lay a hand on her, you're gonna have to answer to me. And St. Peter said, wow, really? He said, yeah. And he said, I cannot believe we missed that. I cannot believe that's not in here. When did this happen? And the guy said, just about two minutes ago. <laughs> Some of you are just getting that. <laughs> See, friends, I, I believe there's a real illusion in our day that says, you know, when you face your moment of crisis, your Goliath moment, you can just develop a bold heart out of the blue. Like you, you can just like dig deep and, and that boldness is in there somewhere and I'll find it when I need it. Let me be very clear. It does not work that way. It does not work that way. 
And the reality is, is if you wait, and if you don't train and tackle and take on all the little bears and lions that come into your life along the way, when your biggie comes, when you finally face Goliath, it will not go well. And so the question this morning is, are you preparing yourself? How are you preparing yourself? Are you preparing yourself by facing the little challenges, the little fears, the little struggles with boldness and courage and faith in God? Or are you relying on yourself? Are you tackling the little things in life with as much courage and trust in the living God as you possibly can? Or are you letting the little challenges of this world tear down the courage quotient in your heart and soul? The best quote I read this week, um, the one that will stick with me, is this. Goliaths don't develop character. They reveal character that's been developed. Goliaths don't develop character. They reveal character that's been developed. Students, can I challenge you specifically this morning? Can I just say this to you? With a pastor's heart for you, with hopes that you will be a generation that changes this world for God and his kingdom. With every decision you make, you are becoming the person you will be. You see, sometimes we live with this idea that at some point I'll be this person, this idealized person that we want to become, and it'll just sort of happen to us that we'll just get old enough and then all of a sudden, poof, there it is. But the, but the reality is this, you are becoming the person you will be with every single decision you make. You're determining it today and you'll determine it tomorrow. With every single challenge, with every single struggle, with every single obstacle, you are deciding Will I trust God? Will I have faith? Will I walk the path that he wants me to walk? Or will I retreat? Will I cower? Will I go my own way? Will I just rely on me? And so the challenge is this. Never waste a struggle. Never flush a fearful moment down the toilet. Every single one of those moments, even the smallest of them, is an opportunity to say, I'm going to be the kind of person who develops a bold heart for God. The kind of person who trusts God so much that I will take on the difficult things in this world. That I won't shrink back or fall away. Friends, to have a bold heart, you must understand that boldness is developed, not discovered. And before we move on to the next section, one thing to notice here is where David's develop, developed boldness comes from. He says this in verse 37. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistines. The Lord. You see, it's not, you know, I figured out that I'm skilled or strong or smart enough to defeat the bear and the lion. I figured out that I've got it in me, that I've got what it takes. And so maybe I've got what it takes to defeat Goliath. No, it's not that. It's I've discovered more deeply that God is with me, that he will deliver me, that he will walk with me into every single battle I face in this world. And so I can have confidence going forward, not in myself, but in him. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. It's like a comedy sketch. <laughs> I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand approached the Philistine. 
Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. This is actually one of the very first incidents of recorded trash talk in human history. <laughs> this is where the NBA players get it from. And, and we notice that, you know, David isn't very good at it because Goliath says something to the effect of, you know, I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David's like, well, oh yeah, I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild. No, actually David throws down pretty good there. And uh, it is a bit of an inspirational moment. But here's what we learn. A bold heart is rooted in the understanding that only in the living God will you find strength to defeat your Goliath. Only in the living God will you find strength to defeat your Goliath. You see, I don't care how big you are. I don't care how strong you are, how tough you are, how smart you are, how savvy you are, how determined you are. At some point, this world will simply get too big for you to handle what faces you on your own. Maybe you took down the lion. Maybe you took down the bear. Maybe you did that in your own strength. But at some point, something or someone is coming and you simply are not big enough. And in this story, Saul's armor represents the way that the world calls people to do courage and boldness. It is not the message of our passage today. You see, the world says, hey, here's how you can develop confidence in this life. Here's how you can push away fear from your world. And the message from the world is very clear. Get enough armor. Get the right armor. If you can just get enough strength and power and influence, if you can make enough money, if you can acquire enough position or prestige, if you can be smart enough, if you can be spiritual enough, if you can be popular enough, then you can be bold. Then you can have courage. Then fear will no longer impact you. And so what do we do? We keep amassing more and more, more popularity, more stuff, more success. We keep thinking the more of it we stock away, the less fear and anxiety and stress will have sway over our lives and friends. Is it working? It is not. It is not working. It does not give you ultimate confidence in the face of the struggles of this world. And it is not the confidence that David uses here. That is not how David builds a bold, courageous heart. He doesn't go for Saul's armor. He doesn't take Saul's giant sword. Instead, he goes for five smooth stones. Incidentally, the number five in the Bible represents grace. Grace, unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. And that's what David 
is really armed with in this story. He's armed with God's grace. He's armed with God's favor. He's armed with the strength of God in his life, the strength and power of the living God of heaven and earth. See, the story of David and Goliath is not the story of the underdog. How the underdog sort of found the strength within him to defeat the giant, massive warrior. It is not a story about David's raw courage, how he was so much more courageous innately or intuitively than his brothers or anyone else. This is not a story about David's skill with a sling or his willingness to take a risk. It is about this fact and this fact alone. Even when Goliath is big, David's God was bigger. And friends, the story of your life It's not a story about your courage or your skill or your willingness to take a risk. It's a story about your God. It's a story about who it is you ultimately trust and put your faith in. Is it you? Is it your armor? Is it all the stuff you've tried to build around your life to bring confidence in the face of struggle? Or is your faith, is your trust in the living God of heaven and earth? You know, friends, one thing we need to get real clear about as we kind of walk through the story of David and Goliath, is who we are in this story. Because, you know, most people, myself included, we read this story from inside David's shoes. We see the whole thing from David's point of view, from his eyes. We imagine ourselves as David. Man, if I could be David, I wish I would have been David. I think I could have been David. What would it take for me to be David? To be the kind of person that in the face of all odds walks down into the valley of the shadow of death and takes on Goliath for everyone to see. What would it look like if only I could be David? But the problem with this perspective is that you know yourself too good, don't you? If you're really honest, you know this. I'm not. David. If this story really went down, I don't think I'm him. And you're not, you're right. Who are you and I in this story? Who does God want us to know and understand that we are when we read the story of David and Goliath? I'll tell you, we're the cowards. We're Saul. We're the brothers. We're the army standing on the hill. We're the people who don't have the courage or strength or ability to walk down into the valley of death and defeat the enemy. And so the message of this story is truly that God has sent a savior for cowards. God has sent a hero, a real hero, to win the battle that we could not win, and he's going to win it on our behalf. And if you look at David, he's not the typical hero, is is he? Like, If you're hoping for a hero to show up, if you're one of the guys on the hillside, if you're, you know, Eliab or one of the brothers or just one of the infantry guys, even if you're King Saul, you're, you know, you're hoping for a hero. You know, I need a hero. I'm holding on for a hero. And And who you're picturing is not David because he shows up and he's weak and he's vulnerable and he's young and he's little. He's so little that he doesn't even fit into the armor. And David is not inspirational. You know, most heroes, when they show up on the scene, everyone says, oh, good, Captain America's here. Everything's going to be okay. He's got that really cool shield, right? Or, or a hero shows up on the scene, and they give some sort of inspirational speech, and they rally the troops into battle. But David never does that. 
He never says, all right, we can do this. Like, I'm William Wallace, and we're here to take them down. Like, we're going we're gonna, to like, cut their heads off. Charge, come with me. And like, the whole group goes. We never see that from David. He doesn't inspire anyone. Like, they kind of hesitantly let him go down into the valley, and they're all kind of going like this, right? This is not going to be pretty. I'm pretty sure we're going into slavery today. It's kind of their mindset. You see, David doesn't even say, I will go and fight for you. He doesn't even show up and say, I'm the kind of hero who will go and fight for you. You know what David says? He says, I'm the kind of hero who will go and fight as you. I will fight this battle as you. Remember, friends, in single combat, the fate of the warrior was the fate of the nation. If David won, they would be treated as if they'd won. If he lost, they'd be treated as if they lost. The stakes in this moment are extremely high. This is a high-stakes moment for not just David, not just for the army, but for the entire nation, for all their wives and their kids back home. This moment had tremendous implications. If David wins, they win. If he loses, they lose. If he was brave, they were treated as brave. If he was a coward, they were treated as cowards. And what David shows us here is that a truly bold heart finds its strength in someone greater than oneself. Because David is really just a wonderful picture of the ultimate David, of the real David, of the true king that was to come, Jesus Christ. You see, like David, he was not real impressive either. He was weak. And he not only saved us like David did at the risk of his life, but more than that, he saved us at the cost of his life. And he went into the ultimate valley of death to face the biggest giant of them all. And at first, it looked like he had been defeated, like the grave had won. But then on the third day, he emerged. He walked out of that valley with the giant's head in his hands. And friends, if you decide to let him fight on your behalf, to fight the battles that you cannot fight for yourself, then the victory that he won over sin and death can be your victory over sin and death. You see, that's the good news that David and Goliath points towards, that points to for you and me in the future. You see, friends, you must know this. If Jesus is your savior, if Jesus is your warrior, if Jesus is the one who is fighting for you in this world, then one little stone and the power of God are stronger than any force this world can throw against you. So the message today is you be bold. You be courageous. You walk through this life with so much confidence, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, not because of the armor that you've amassed around you, but because the battle has been fought on your behalf, the battle has been won, the enemy has been defeated, and the end of the story, your story and my story, has already been set. Let me read the conclusion of this story to you. And I want you to imagine that instead of David, this is Jesus walking out of the valley of the shadow of death for you. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. That doesn't give you goosebumps. I don't know what will. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him.
You see, death, sin, all your shortcomings and failures, they've been slain just like this giant by the one who came and gave his life on the cross, by the one whose body was broken and blood was shed, by the one who walked out into the valley of that tomb and that grave and then emerged three days later with the head of the giant in his hand and said, guess what, friends? You know what it's time for? It's time for freedom. Freedom is here, and it's available to you and me through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today, we declare that again at this table. We come to these tables and we say, God, the victory has been won. I can have courage and boldness and security as I walk through this world because you have fought the ultimate battle on my behalf. I know how this story ends, and so I can have courage today. I don't know what you're facing this morning. Maybe there's a Goliath in your life. Something huge, something enormous. Maybe it's just a bear. Maybe it's just a lion. Maybe it's just a simple little struggle. But whatever it is, whatever you're facing, you bring that to this table and be reminded why you can boldly and courageously stand in front of it with confidence and walk the road that God is calling you to walk because of Jesus Christ who he is and what he's done and the victory that he's won for you and me. Amen? I'm going to pray and then the tables will be open as the worship team comes to lead us in some closing songs. God, today, just picture that little boy walking up the hill with that head of the giant in his hand. And I think about how completely and utterly you have destroyed sin and death in our lives. How you've validated us and cleansed us and empowered us to no longer have to rely on ourselves or our circumstances, but to look beyond those things and to trust fully and completely in you. God, I pray today that as we think about the challenges and struggles in our lives, you would speak into those, that you would remind us who we are, that you would remind us that we are your kids, that you would remind us of the victory that has been won, and that you will give us strength and courage and power today that's from you, not from us, that goes beyond our circumstances. Help us be the kind of church that walks into the valleys of this world with the hope and peace and strength of the gospel. And that there, we proclaim and declare your victory. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the privilege of being your kids. We pray it all in your name. Amen. Tables are open.